Okay, let's pray before we go into the Word. Father, open our eyes, we pray, to wondrous things from Your Word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to see and to hear the truth and to be strengthened, comforted, convicted, motivated, refreshed, humbled, emboldened. Uh, Apply in hearts according to each one's needs, as You know our own souls better than we know them ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Acts 19, 1-7 and stand for the reading of God's Word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples... And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. What does it mean to be a disciple? Interesting, the report we heard from Jan this morning actually dovetails quite well with that question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We've all met someone, or perhaps many people, who say, I am a follower of Jesus, but then woefully lack an attendant life change or knowledge about the one they claim to follow and obey. Perhaps uh, many of us have been there at one time, or perhaps some of us are there now. But what does it mean to be a disciple? Upon his arrival in Ephesus, Paul uh, finds about a dozen men who are called disciples. Paul had promised to the Jews in Ephesus that he would return, and after a long journey back through Jerusalem, through Galatia and Phrygia, he arrives back at Ephesus, and uh, when he arrives there, he finds these disciples, these about a dozen men. Now the question immediately uh, rises, okay, these are disciples, disciples of whom? Now according to the text, it seems like maybe they could be disciples of John the Baptist. After all, verse 3, Paul asked them, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. However, in all of Luke and Acts, written by Luke, twice disciples of John are mentioned, and they're mentioned expressly as the disciples of John. Conversely, when Luke uses the word disciples many times in these books, he describes disciples of Christ without specification. For example, just a few verses before, Acts 18.23, 
After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Uh, We just assume they're disciples of Jesus. So I'm of the opinion, and there's varying opinions on this, that these are disciples of Jesus. Now, the rest of the story leads us to believe that they were woefully deficient disciples of Jesus, and in fact, probably as yet, or possibly unsaved disciples of Jesus. We might ask, is that even possible? Is it possible to be a disciple of Jesus and and not saved? To claim you follow Him and yet remain woefully deficient in your understanding and your experience and your obedience to Him. And of course, yes, it's possible to be one such person. I think back to the confusion of Jesus' disciples throughout His ministry. At one moment, Jesus confesses Jesus to be the Christ in His ministry. But then later in John, when they run to the tomb, it says, Then they believed. And it seems there is this progressive belief throughout Jesus' ministry. And they didn't really get it until Pentecost. Now, they were probably saved before then, but there's this process going on. Another example from Luke. Uh, In Luke 24, Jesus encounters two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're sorrowful, they're confused about the death of Jesus. They say he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and yet his body is absent. They're confused. Where is Jesus? Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So, again, these people were probably saved. That's not my point. But they were followers, and yet they had an insufficient and deficient understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do. Now, these twelve men, and here twelve men is not symbolic, especially since it says about twelve men, and some people can carry that into uh, Never Never Land, but um, these twelve men were disciples, but they were woefully deficient disciples. How common it is in our own time and place to find people who are disciples of Christ, who do not know him or do not know things about him or who who are not trained at his feet or who not who, who have not begun to learn to obey all that he has commanded Ligonier's uh Ligonier came out with a statement uh the 2022 state of theology survey just a few weeks ago one of the the uh, stats, and stats can be alarming. I don't want to be alarmist, but this is an interesting stat. The survey says 43% of professing evangelicals, when I first read this survey, I was thinking about Americans, but it's professing evangelicals agreed with this, this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Disciples who are woefully deficient. It pays to look into our own hearts, to examine ourselves, and even to look around us, into our families, into our spheres of influence. And we can say, I I claim to follow Christ, but am I 
a true disciple? Do I really know Him? Do I truly follow after Him? Do I seek to obey Him? Do I enjoy His work on my behalf in giving me life and righteousness? How can I speak a word of exhortation to those around me who are disciples but who are woefully deficient? These Ephesian disciples lived uh, in a unique period in redemptive history, and this is incredibly important for understanding this text. Uh, Daryl Bach points out that these men were caught in the special situation of transition. They're caught in the special trans, uh, situation of transition. These men, uh, these twelve disciples, were, uh, or the twelve disciples, the men here and the men on the road to Emmaus, all these examples are in this strange period of time in sort of redemptive history. They're living in the new covenant age, and yet they were born in or raised by parents who lived in uh, the old covenant. It's a strange transitionary time. This explains in part what uh, may seem like an odd question to us and an odd response. In verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, since these men were followers of John, it's probably likely that they were Jews. And unless they were really bad Jews, what they mean by their answer is probably not. We've never heard that the Holy Spirit existed. But rather, we haven't heard that the Holy Spirit has arrived, that He's come. There was actually a strong expectation in Judaism of the coming Spirit The coming of the Holy Spirit marked out the eschaton, the arrival of the beginning of the new creation. This is one thing that was on Peter's mind in his sermon at Pentecost when he quotes from Joel chapter 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and on your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Uh, G.K. Beale is helpful here. He points out that the coming spirit is connected with some, he calls them return from exile uh, prophecies in the book of Isaiah, which speak of the restoration of the people of God and the beginning of the new creation. In Acts 1.8, uh, which is programmatic for the book of Acts, uh, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, we see that unfolding uh, narratively in the book of Acts. In, in uh, Acts 1.8, um, we see these prophecies being alluded to, being fulfilled, or beginning. Um, so, Beginning in verse 6, so we'll go to Acts 1, beginning in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When the, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is probably an allusion to, Acts, or to Isaiah 32. 
uh, 15 when it says, Until the Spirit is poured out upon or come upon us from on high. And then connected with this coming of the Spirit is this, this renewal, this beginning of the new creation. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be at peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. So here we have this connection of the the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them and the beginning of the new creation of renewal. And then it goes on in verse 8 of chapter... Acts chapter 1, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. Again, this is perhaps probably an allusion to Isaiah uh, 43 and 10 through 16, where he, he says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declare and sa- I declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, I am God. So here again, the connection between these prophecies in, in Isaiah and the, uh, the Great Commission in Acts, in Acts 1.8. And then finally that this will be carried to the ends of the earth. And here we have in Isaiah 49, 5 and 6, the suffering servant song. Uh, it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb is to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the uh, preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So you can see how Jesus' words in Acts and this version of the Great Commission in Acts 1.8 echoes these great uh, restoration promises from Isaiah and how the coming of the Spirit in power is tied to this age, this beginning of this restoration age. And that's why the Spirit appeared in a powerful way at, at Pentecost, beginning in Jerusalem, and then again in a powerful way in Judea at Cornelius' house and in Samaria among the Samaritans, in order to plainly demonstrate that the hated Samaritans were indeed to be a part of this end-time people of God. And now, why again in Ephesus, he comes upon these disciples in a dramatic fashion, only after Paul lays hands on them, as the apostles did with the Samaritans in Acts 8, to show that the gospel had gone out into the ends of the earth. It says in verse 6, And when he laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And so, incidentally, there's a bit of uh, diversity and interpretation here. Um, Some have argued that Acts 19 does not represent a delay in the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Ephesus as it did in uh, Samaria. But I do see, in some sense, Paul's laying on of hands as separate and subsequent to the baptism. 
And so I'm of the opinion that it's somewhat similar to Acts chapter 8. Um, though I, I do agree that probably these disciples were not uh, believers yet until after he preached the gospel to them. But you can see why it was such an important question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? If a person does not have the Holy Spirit, they're not a member of the end time people of God. They're not a part of the restoration of the Messiah. And for us, what a wonderful privilege it is to live in the age of the coming of the Holy Spirit. A time when the Helper comes, when He anoints the people of God for the special task of fulfilling the Great Commission. In the Old Testament, men and women were regenerated, they had the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit came on special people to accomplish special tasks, to anointed them for special tasks. Prophets, priests, kings, Aholiab, Bezalel, these men were anointed by the Holy Spirit. But in the New Covenant, the Spirit falls on all the people of God. That's a wonderful privilege. It's a wonderful privilege to live in this time. R.C. Sproul uh, reminds us, he said, When God told Moses to select, select 70 men that he knew to be elders of Israel, God took of the Spirit that was upon Moses and anointed those 70 to help him. Joshua objected when it was reported, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Moses said, Are you envious for my sake? Would that all of God's people would be prophets and that he would be put his Spirit upon them? This was just a prayer that Moses said, but by the time you get to Joel, the prayer becomes a prophecy. Joel is saying that God would, in the future of redemptive history, pour out His Spirit, not just on 70, but on the whole community of believers. Joel 2. That's the significance of Pentecost. God fulfills that prophecy of Joel and pours out an anointing power on all of us. Now, what does that mean? He pours out an anointing power on all of us. Does that mean we should all expect to, to prophesy and to speak in tongues? Does it mean that though we've been converted, we must wait for a powerful second experience of the Holy Spirit to come upon us? Pentecost, Cornelius' house, here in Ephesus, are the only three places in Acts where speaking in tongues is mentioned. And I believe it's also alluded to in the story in Acts 8 with the Samaritans. Um, but again, we see this, this action of speaking in tongues according with Acts 1.8 from Jerusalem to, to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We have Pentecost and then we have what we might call Pentecostal aftershocks reaching out in strategic points in redemptive history, laying the foundation of the church. What Charismatics and Pentecostals and some other groups have said is is we should expect to have individual Pentecosts. That that's normative for the Christian experience. What happened in Samaria, uh, where they were saved and the Spirit fell upon them at at a later time, that's normative. Or what happened here in Acts 15, 19, that they were disciples. 
they were baptized and then the Spirit came upon them later. That that's somehow normative. This is what has often been called second blessing theology or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That we may all be saved, but we should wait and pray for a powerful coming of the Holy Spirit upon us a second time. This interpretation is a failure to understand the unique redemptive historical significance of these events. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson wrote, We should no more anticipate a personal Pentecost than that we will experience a personal Jordan, or personal wilderness, personal Gethsemane, or a personal Golgotha. These were unique redemptive historical events. The promise is that the Spirit would be poured out on all of God's people. And second blessing theology reserves it for the spiritual elite. Those who have uh, obtained a higher spiritual plane. So the coming of the Spirit in power on us is normative. The unique delays of the Spirit in power are not normative, but demonstrate unique and important moments in redemptive history. In other words, the moment we're regenerated, we receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Another thing this demonstrates is the unique role of the apostles in laying the foundation of the church and attesting to their uh, testimony and to their authority. Notice how Luke emphasizes that Paul laid his hands on them in verse 6, just like the apostles did in Samaria. They laid their hands on the Samaritans. This testifies to the validity of the apostolic testimony of Paul. Uh, and this is actually, and we would think by this point in Acts, we don't need to have Paul's ministry verified, but that's part of the point of the book of Acts. And in Acts 19, it's a significant point that he laid his hands on them and the Spirit came upon them. Then in a few short verses, it talks about how he was doing great miracles. God was doing great miracles through Paul to the point where rags that had touched Paul were being brought and, and healing people. And then finally, in the story of the sons of Sceva, we see even the demons revere Paul and understand who this person is. A continuationist, a person who believes the sign gifts like tongues and prophecy continue to function in the church today, would say, see, this is what happens when we receive the Holy Spirit. We get the sign gifts. We get tongues and prophecy. They accompany the Spirit. Cessationists, those of us who believe that the sign gifts have ceased, would respond, no, you're, you're missing the point of the sign gifts. That, that just as they affirm Paul's ministry here as a true apostle of Christ, their true purpose, that, that, that's their purpose in the church, to affirm the gospel ministry, to confirm the apostolic testimony as they lay the foundation of the church, and that purpose being fulfilled, their function served, there is no longer any need for them. I bring up these two debates about second blessing and cessationism and and the ongoing gifts of the Holy Spirit, just briefly and not comprehensively, but just to say this, that we live in the age now of the promise of the anointing of the Holy Spirit on all God's people, on all the end-time people of God. And sometimes we, not even intentionally, but just by osmosis, absorb 
what's in the water that we swim in, and we start to wonder if there might be something defective in us. Should, should I display a unique power of the Holy Spirit? Am I, am I deficient in some way? If I was really converted, shouldn't I at some point just kind of get over that hump and finally attain to a higher spiritual plane? But the confidence that we have is that if we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. I texted Michael my title this this week. Do you have the Holy Spirit? And he texted back, yes. Amen. I do have the Holy Spirit. Have you received the Holy Spirit? You've been anointed with His power and have been given unique gifts to exercise in Christ's kingdom for His glory and for the spreading of the gospel nations if you have Christ. This explains Paul's second unusual question. First, did you receive the Holy Spirit? No. Into what then were you baptized? What? How do those two things connect? I think we can make sense of this question when we understand that the coming of the Spirit in power marks out the eschaton, the beginning of the last days. The beginning of the new creation, which only comes to fruition in the Messiah. Once again, we see these men, as Bach said, caught in the special situation of transition. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He's come to bear witness to Christ. If they don't know who the Spirit is, we can be certain they don't know who Christ is. They're caught in the the old covenant epoch. If they had not heard of the Holy Spirit and, and that He had come and begun the process of restoration, if they were stuck in the baptism of John all these years later, then surely they haven't encountered Christ or received Christian baptism. So he asked them, into what were you baptized? Into John's baptism. Uh, and verse 4, Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Essentially he's saying, you've adopted the, the message of ethical renewal and repentance that, that John preached, and that's, that's wonderful, but there's more to that story. John was leveling the ground for the arrival of the Messiah. And he's come, just as the scripture said he would, and the man who came is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. And he came and he vanquished sin and death on the cross. And he's become the first fruits of the promised new creation by being raised from the dead. He's ascended to his throne in heaven where he's ruling and reigning. And he sent the Spirit as a helper to testify and to empower his people to proclaim his name so that his kingdom would be spread across the globe. And if you're really disciples of Christ, it's time to move past the rite of cleansing, the rite of repentance, and to receive the sign of the new covenant epoch. The sign and seal of God's new covenant with with his people through a new mediator and to be engrafted into his end-time people and and the Messiah. The point here being, and I understand perhaps that was a bit of meandering through the weeds, the point here is we, we cannot dispense with Jesus 
We cannot dispense with the Holy Spirit. They go together. Their unique works during this time mark out the end time epoch in which these men lurched from one age to another and the age in which we now live. You cannot have Christ without the Holy Spirit and you cannot have the Holy Spirit without Christ. This is made clear in Galatians 3, 1-6. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you and do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or again in Romans 8, Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the normative experience for the believer. That when we're regenerated, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're united to Him by faith, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's simultaneous. We don't need to wait for an extraordinary experience. We don't have to wonder if we, if we got uh, skipped during Holy Spirit mail call. If we have Christ, we have the Spirit. And if we have the Spirit, we have Christ. And we are set apart as the end time people of God. Now, if the end time gift of the Holy Spirit is given to all, the, all, all men and all, all women in the end time uh, age, universally, uh, we don't have to be the next... Charles Spurgeon, or some kind of super-Christian to, to be effectively used in Christ's kingdom. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4. Now there are very varieties of gift, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And he goes on in verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose, If all were single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet there is one body. And well, we say, well, I I feel pretty useless. I don't think I have any gifts. I hear that quite frequently. Well, you may not be called to preach or to be the world's greatest apologist, but you, you do have gifts, gifts of service, gifts of hospitality. So we talked about this morning, there's opportunities and vocation to fulfill toward your family, toward your workplace. You have been given gifts to serve in Christ's kingdom because the Holy Spirit has come upon you in power if you believe in Jesus. So whatever gift it is, if asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? If you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the answer is yes, without a doubt. So you are a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the King, called in to be the, a part of the end-time people of God for, for the unique privilege of employing the Spirit's gifts for the upbuilding of the church and for the spreading of the promised new creation to the ends of the earth. Praise God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, let's take our hymnals and we'll stand to sing a hymn. Uh, Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove 332.